0: Thank you very much, Dennis. That was a very um, uh, kind and generous introduction. I actually actually like college basketball though, <laughs> although I picked Wisconsin to go all the way this this way this year, so my skill perhaps isn't that great. Um, so I find myself wearing two hats here tonight i'm uh, and both are are honors to wear. I'm uh, delighted as President of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond to host the Sandbridge Lecture and the Virginia Association of Economists here tonight. Um, but it's a tremendous honor and a great privilege to be uh, the Sandbridge Lecturer this year. Um, I think that this is some sort of conflict of interest, but I haven't quite figured out what, um, but um, I'm assured that it's not, um, so I'll proceed and deliver my lecture nonetheless. I recently... Um, So I'm going to start with a a little story. I recently had um, the opportunity to guest teach a couple of business school uh, classes, Uh, classes in economics. These are colleagues that I've known, uh, professional economists I've known, who invited me. One invited me to go to the the, uh, graduate school of business at the University of Chicago. Another was the famous Dewey Dane uh, down at Vanderbilt University. So it was was great to be back in the classroom. now, don't get me wrong, I like my current job, but it was it was nice not to have to vote against anything for a day. I opened my discussions in each of the classrooms with a pair of questions. I asked the students to put themselves uh, in the place of a monetary policymaker choosing a target for the federal fund rate. First, I gave them a set of hypothetical facts about the state of the economy, a slowdown in housing after uh, a multi-year housing boom, rising mortgage default rates, preliminary indications of a potential slowdown in business investment. And then I asked them, what are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do? Got in their face, you know. Someone told me that's the way that motivates students. So students dutifully replied that the situation would call for a reduction in the funds rate. They'd obviously been doing their homework. So I was very pleased to hear that. So next, I gave them another set of hypothetical facts about the economy. Core PCE inflation on a year-over-year basis has been above 2% for almost three straight years, as uh, Professor O'Toole noted. After some signs of moderation in recent months, inflation numbers had moved higher. <clears throat> Energy prices have been fluctuating around historically elevated levels, and futures markets predicted further increases to come. And labor compensation is rising after a relatively flat period. Same question. What are you going to do? Once again, their responses came right out of the textbook. An increase in the funds rate is required in order to counter rising inflation, other things equal. The trick, of course, is that both sets of hypothetical facts are drawn from the same period basically right now. My objective was to um, get their minds a little puzzled, get them thinking, get them motivated, Um, but to underscore the fact that monetary policy decisions are not obvious at times, and that figuring out the appropriate policy action requires as complete a picture as possible of the current state of the economy, and that interpreting that picture can be a very challenging task. And so that's what I wanted to lay out for them. The situation I presented to the students represents a policymaking dilemma. I think it's fair to call it a dilemma because the obvious course of action in response to each of those two sets of facts is different. The facts appear to present the policymaker with a trade-off. You can address one, inflation or real growth, but that puts the other at risk. Now, I think there's an element of truth to characterizing this situation as a trade-off. But that characterization also, I think, is an extreme oversimplification and can be dangerously misleading. Monetary policy actions today, at any point in time, are capable of affecting inflation and unemployment both now and in the future. Consequently, it is a mistake to view policy decision-making as a sequence of one-shot trade-off choices. Some understanding of how inflation and unemployment interrelate over time is absolutely essential. So I'd like to devote my remarks tonight to the relationship between inflation and the real side of the economy, and to what I think that relationship implies for policymaking. Now, this relationship can be described in terms of any number of alternative measures of real activity. Perhaps the most popular measure is the unemployment rate because it captures um, the extent to which the ongoing expansion in employment generated by growth in real activity is rapid enough to absorb additions to the labor force. As an indicator of the economy's use of resources, the unemployment rate is commonly used as a rough measure of the extent to which real activity is giving rise to, and I'll quote here, inflation pressures. Now, I have much more to say about that relationship later on. Unemployment and inflation have, together, been at the center of macroeconomics for at least as long as there has been a field called macroeconomics. The relationship between these two variables is usually summarized by the Phillips curve, named for Professor A. W. Phillips, the economist who, in 1957, documented an inverse relationship between the unemployment rate and wage inflation in nearly 100 years of data for the United Kingdom. But the notion that rising inflation might at times be associated with rising real growth and falling unemployment had been recognized and discussed by economists writing much, much earlier, a fact that's been emphasized by many scholars, including Robert Lucas in his Nobel uh, lecture, by my longtime Richmond Fed colleague and friend, Tom Humphrey, who retired from here in 2005. Since Phillips' original paper, his curve has played a critical role in the evolution of thinking about macroeconomics and monetary policy. It captures the notable correlations between inflation and unemployment, although those correlations have varied over time in important ways. But more importantly, it embodies compactly a theoretical understanding of the interplay between inflation and real economic forces. Because of its importance, and because the modern version of the Phillips curve is in some respects starkly different from the early edition, I think it'll be worth our time to briefly review some of the Phillips curve's history uh, before examining the role it plays today in thinking about monetary policy. As always, the views expressed are my own and not necessarily shared by others in the Federal Reserve. But if you followed my voting record, that shouldn't be a surprise. The Phillips curve began as an a-theoretical relationship, essentially drawn to fit the data. The form with which most people are familiar, linking unemployment to price inflation, was first set down in 1960 by Paul Samuelson and Robert Solow for U.S. data. Following Samuelson and Solow, the Phillips curve began to be interpreted instead as describing a set of choices available to society each time period. According to this view, if the data suggested that price stability tended to coexist on average with 5% unemployment, we would have to live with higher inflation than zero to enjoy persistently lower unemployment than 5%. This thinking led to descriptions of Uh, policy as either stimulating real activity at the cost of rising inflation or fighting inflation by restraining the real economy. This understanding of the Phillips curve seems to have contributed to a political sentiment that, at least when inflation was relatively low, the cost of a little more inflation was worth the return in reduced unemployment. But an alternative understanding of the Phillips curve was emerging in the 1960s. Milton Friedman and Edmund Phelps, separately, focused on the role of expectations in the relationship between inflation and unemployment. Specifically, they argued that while inflationary policy actions that were not anticipated by the public could have a, a temporary stimulative effect on the economy, fully anticipated inflation would not affect real activity. Similarly, surprised disinflation would, could have a temporary contractionary effect, but fully anticipated disinflation would not. This meant that the observed correlation in the data between inflation and unemployment must have come largely from episodes in which changes in the inflation rate were not expected by the public. According to this, expectations augmented Phillips curve developed by Friedman and Phelps Changes in inflation and by implication monetary policy could not have persistent, long-lasting effects on real economic activity. Over the long run, economic growth and unemployment would tend to return to rates that were determined by productivity growth, population dynamics, and other characteristics of the markets for goods and labor. To illustrate, suppose a policymaker consults a Phillips curve estimated from historical data that tells him that 3% unemployment can be achieved at a 5% inflation rate. If the policymaker then eased interest rates in order to bring unemployment down below, uh, down lower, the policy might initially have the intended effect, provided the public continues to expect the lower previously prevailing inflation rate. But, the the Friedman-Phelps framework argues, a sustained effort to maintain inflation at 5% would ultimately lead the public to adjust their expectations for inflation. In the long run, unemployment would again, rise again to its natural level given by the real structure of the economy. In retrospect, many observers have labeled the Friedman Phelps analysis prescient. They point to the 1970s as confirmation that the implications of the, uh, the expectations augmented Phillips curve was correct because a period of high and volatile inflation in the 1970s brought no sustained improvement in real economic activity. In fact, probably not coincidentally, general performance of the real economy was rather poor during that period. The analysis of Friedman and Phelps focused attention on the critical macroeconomic role of expectations. What they assumed was adaptive expectations, meaning that households and firms base their expectations of future inflation on their observations of recent past inflation. This made it very natural for them to think of an increase in the inflation rate as, nat- as naturally catching people by surprise. Only over time would people learn about the altered policy stance. Well why wouldn't people foresee how the central bank would behave rather than rely on some mechanical adaptive expectations forecasting formula? as Friedman and Phelps assume, For example, why wouldn't they expect the central bank to try and exploit a short-run Phillips curve even before inflation rises? Such anticipation could rob inflationary policy of even its short-run stimulative effects. In 1972, Robert Lucas provided an alternative rational expectations analysis of the relationship between inflation and real activity. Under rational expectations, People's expectations are based not just on their past observations, but also on their knowledge of how the economy is likely to behave, including their knowledge of the process driving monetary policymakers' choices. The rational expectations analysis retained the Friedman-Phelps implications that only unexpected inflation would be associated with falling unemployment. But under rational expectations, the policymaker lacked the ability to systematically exploit even a short run Uh, trade-off between inflation and unemployment. In separate work, Lucas also showed how rational expectations presented a challenge to making policy choices based on statistical estimates of relationships such as Phillips Curves. In what has famously become called the Lucas Critique, he showed that shifts in the pattern of policy behavior would cause such relationships as the Phillips curve to shift over time so that statistical estimates from historical data would no longer be relevant for predicting the economy's response to a change in policy. Rational expectations imply that the public's reaction to policy is more forward-looking than in the case of adaptive expectations. Also in the 1970s, Finn Kidlin and Edward Prescott analyzed the problem faced by a policymaker face it when the public is forward-looking, in, as in the rational expectation sense. They dissected the temptation faced by a policymaker choosing inflation on a period-by-period basis. They study a setting in which there's a natural rate of unemployment and in which the best possible policy is one that achieves price stability. In any given period, what the public expected the central bank to do has already been determined. Given those beliefs, the policymaker can pull down unemployment with a little more inflation. But people understand that the policymaker will be so tempted, and they don't believe prices will be stable as a result. The result is higher inflation, as the public anticipates. The central banker does raise inflation to try and bring unemployment down. But there's no gain in real activity. Uh, The private sector, by anticipating the policymaker's actions, has defeated his intent. What the policymaker would like to do is to find a way to commit to price stability. The work of Kidlin and Prescott highlighted the role of a central banker's credibility, that is to say, the extent to which the public believes their commitment to price stability. Their work also highlights the extent to which establishing credibility requires. Indeed, it's virtually equivalent to sacrificing future flexibility. And this is an unimportant point. There's no such thing as credibility without essentially giving up the flexibility that you will have in the future to select particular actions. So the linchpin of the link between inflation, unemployment, and monetary policy is the public's expectations for inflation. If if a run-up in inflation has been correctly anticipated, then it will have little or no effect on unemployment. Similarly, if people expect falling inflation, then unemployment will not increase as much as it would if the disinflation were unanticipated. Thomas Sargent demonstrated this dramatically in his analysis of the ends of several hyperinflations in a number of countries. When, a part, when these are a part of a comprehensive reform of monetary and fiscal arrangements, then very large reductions in inflation were achieved at much less cost than would be predicted by the standard Phillips curve. The role of expectations figured quite prominently in the disinflation that took place in the 1980s under Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. The Fed had delayed taking strong action against inflation before Volcker took office in 1979, in part out of a belief that the slope of the Phillips curve was such that a fairly large increase in unemployment would be required to reduce inflation. The cost of the Volcker inflation turned out to be substantially less than everybody predicted, however. The recent release of FOMC transcripts, we, we released them with a, a five-year lag, but they've been going back in history and releasing historical transcripts. They were released a couple of years ago. Um, scholars who've gone over those transcripts and looked at the discussions in the meetings, at 79, 80, 81, 82, they've discovered that expectations were really at the core of those discussions. Um, people were batting about in the committee, you know, Are expectations anchored? What are expectations going to be doing next? How will this policy move affect expectations? It was all about getting expectations back down into line. So, I'm going to start talking about the modern Phillips curve, sort of the next generation. Prior to the 1970s and 80s, a significant methodological divide separated macro and micro. That divide broke down, in the 70s, when economists learned how to study models of the aggregate economy that were built on sound microeconomic foundations. That is to say, they were general equilibrium models. But they were also capable of generating macroeconomic phenomena, addressing macroeconomic issues. In order to address a macroeconomic, models had to be dynamic because at the core of macroeconomics is investment and interest rates, and those are both intertemporal decisions. They had to be stochastic as well, because business cycles seem sort of hard to predict, and uncertainty faced by economic decision makers seems really critical um, to macroeconomic fluctuations. The first generation of these general elite equilibrium models of macroeconomic phenomena had no substantive interaction between inflation and real economic activity. These were the so-called real business cycle models. They displayed business cycles that were driven entirely by real phenomena, shocks to productivity, oil, you know, material increases, oil prices, and the like. The challenge was to build models that captured the inflation-unemployment-real activity link in a compelling way. And the modern Phillips curve grew out of one approach to understanding that link. The approach involves specifying price setting frictions that make a firm's choice of the price of its good a dynamic decision that depends on expectations of future inflation. In addition, there's a monopolistic competition feature. This makes sense. I mean, you can't really think of a firm setting its price unless they have a little bit of market power. So these are models where every firm has a little bit of market power, and they can set their price as a markup um, over their costs. Under common forms of this friction, only a fraction of sellers reset their prices each period, either because price changes are costly um, or because there's some lack of information or for some other reason. Now, they, when they do that, they anticipate the length of time until their next opportunity to adjust their price doing that sellers are naturally going to choose a price that depends on what they think will happen to the overall price level in the intervening time period if they're going to leave their price set for half a year they're going to pick a price list to publish on June 1st and they're going to leave it in place till you know January 1st they're going to take into account the change in the purchasing power of money over the course of that 6 months in this class of models current inflation depends on real economic variables, particularly because the real cost of production, the real marginal cost of production affects um, inflation. This is because prices are set as markups over marginal costs. Now, under some heroic assumption, the real marginal cost that influences this pricing decision is related in a one-to-one fashion with measures of real economic activity like output and unemployment. Under these assumptions, in that case, you can get an equation that you can describe as a Phillips curve. It relates current inflation, because it relates current price setting by firms, to what they expect inflation to be over the period their price is set fixed, and to current real activity, because it depends on current real production costs. So it's a Phillips curve. It relates current inflation to expected future inflation and to a current measure of real activity. Now, I should say that although this approach has broad acceptance, it's not without its critics. Um, Some economists view this price-setting friction as uh, ad hoc, unpersuasive. Moreover, there are alternative frictions, alternative approaches, such as spatial separation and limited information that can also rationalize the monetary non-neutralities, these um, non-trivial links between inflation and real activity. Nonetheless, uh, the Phillips Curve, the way I've described it, has become a workhorse for applied central bank policy analysis. So I'm going to talk more about it. it really dominates thinking in central banks around the world these days. This modern form of the Phillips curve closely resembles the expectations-augmented Phillips curve of Friedman and Phelps, and thus it shares many of their same properties. For example, a marked movement in inflation will be associated with a move in unemployment only if the inflation is different from what the public expects to prevail in the near future. Furthermore, inflation expectations in these models are forward-looking, so expected inflation, just like inflation itself and unemployment, is an endogenous variable. Determined by the interaction of the conduct of monetary policy with private sector decisions and shocks to the economy. When economists take this new Phillips curve to the data, they often find that in their regressions, if you throw in past inflation, past inflation is useful for explaining current inflation, even after you attempt to control for expected future inflation and for measures of current real activity. This finding has led to some to formulate alternative versions of the Phillips curve, in which there's both this forward-looking component that I described, where firms are looking ahead to inflation in the, in the near term, and a backward-looking price-setting behavior. Backward-looking price-setters in these models are assumed to form expectations the way Friedman itself described, as a weighted average of um, recent past inflation or to set prices based on some simple rule of thumb based on recent inflation. This is called a hybrid Phillips curve, and it implies that there's an intrinsic persistence to inflation. That is, there's an intrinsic sluggishness or slow-moving quality to inflation beyond that implied by the persistence of external shocks or the effect of expected inflation on current inflation or the conduct of policy. Moreover, In the presence of significant backward-looking price-setting behavior, inflation would be be prone to respond more slowly to changes in policy. Think about it. Um, You know, you you change policy and it takes a while. You've got these agents that aren't paying attention to what policy is doing. It's only slowly that expectations of inflation and that actual inflation, as set by these backward-looking price-setters, adapts to the new policy environment. Consequently, Mm -hmm a backward-looking component implies that the real economic cost of bringing down inflation may be higher than would be the case with a purely forward-looking Phillips curve. For the same reason, backward-looking features would mean that inflation does not respond as rapidly to a change in policy as it otherwise might, even if that change itself is well explained by the policymaker and well anticipated and understood by the public. A small cottage industry of economists is now devoted to estimating Phillips curves to try to find the appropriate weight to put on backward-looking price setting. And from what I've just said, it should be clear why, because Phillips curves with that are dominated by forward-looking behavior have different policy implications than Phillips curves that are dominated by this backward-looking behavior. So there's a lot that's at stake. Common estimates are that around 25% of agents form expectations in a backward-looking fashion, although estimates of up to 60% have been obtained. Many such estimates, though, assume that the conduct of monetary policy, in the sense of, you know, what function captures the feedback from current economic conditions to policy setting, has been constant over the estimation period, a period that usually includes the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. If instead one allows for shifts in monetary policy, then it turns out that the estimated weight on the backward-looking components of the Phillips curve is generally far lower, in fact, often zero. The intuition is that by not allowing persistent swings in monetary policy, the standard approach to this estimation mistakenly attributes inflation persistence to the backward-looking expectations rather than letting inflation the, the persistence of inflation be attributed to persistent, slow moving swings in monetary policy as we as we saw, the sixties and then moving into the seventies, an inflationary trend and then a slowly a slow decline in the trend in the eighties and nineties. So the observed persistence of inflation might arise from forward looking behavior combined with uncertainty in the public's mind about policy trends. People are uncertain about the policymakers' objectives or strategies; that their expectations are going to adjust more slowly as they learn about these features of policy by observing actual policy actions. I'm so going to talk about policy now, and this is this is really the payload. While there's reasonably strong statistical evidence of shifts in monetary policy, the premise that inflation expectations are forward-looking. And that the conduct of monetary policy has evolved over time is broadly consistent with the post-war history of U.S. monetary policy. Moreover, that history is intimately intertwined with the evolution of our understanding of the Phillips Curve. Widely held views about the Phillips Curve in the 1960s suggested that tolerating a small amount of inflation would allow permanently lower unemployment. As trend inflation steadily rose in the early 1970s, the public came to understand this and came to expect higher inflation, and they came to expect it to persist. And the Phillips curve, lo and behold, shifted out. Policymakers had overlooked the endogeneity of expectations and the influence of those expectations on future inflation outcomes. In the 1970s, policymakers were reluctant to attack inflation aggressively, out of a belief, based on their estimates, uh, their estimated slope of the Phillips curve, that high sustained unemployment would be required to reduce inflation. Belief in backward-looking expectations led policymakers to underestimate the extent to which they could influence the evolution of expectations and thereby reduce the cost of disinflation. Unemployment did increase during the disinflation that Chairman Volcker initiated in 1979, but it was by substantially less than had been predicted by backward-looking Phillips curve analysis. On several occasions after the Volcker disinflation, these have been identified as inflation scares by my former colleague Marvin Goodfriend, inflation expectations rose and the Fed responded aggressively by raising real interest rates above what otherwise would have been warranted. These episodes helped gain credibility for the Fed's commitment to low inflation. As realized inflation fell in the 1980s, I'm sorry, the 1990s, available measures of expected inflation fell as well. And since then, they've been fairly low and stable. But this apparent stability relative to the wide swings they displayed in prior decades should not be cause for complacency, particularly with inflation currently running uncomfortably high. Some observers, for example, have noted that the decline in the persistence of inflation in recent decades makes it more likely that inflation will soon decline toward its recent trend. This much is unobjectionable, but they go on to argue that policymakers can be more patient as a result, relying on the so-called gravitational pull of inflation expectations rather than rely on interest rate increases that might push unemployment up. But the decline in persistence is most likely a consequence of the way policy has generally responded when inflation rises over the last couple of decades. If so, then failing to respond now is inconsistent with the expectations underlying the tendency in recent years for inflation to return back to trend. This takes the stability of current expectations for granted, and it runs the risk of eroding credibility. The nature of the Phillips curve is particularly relevant to evaluating alternative policy strategies for restoring price stability. Would reducing inflation require large increases in unemployment? Again, the key is the behavior of inflation expectations, which now seem to to hover between 2 and 2.5%, a bit below inflation itself expectations are backward-looking, tied to past experience, one might favor a very gradual decline in inflation so as to minimize the effect on unemployment. Forward-looking expectations, however, suggest a strategy of attempting to influence expectations directly through clear and forceful communications. If such communication strategy were successful, a more rapid return to price stability would be feasible and would require less policy tightening than would otherwise be the case. How responsive to policymaker influence are inflation expectations. General prescriptions are unlikely, because results are always going to depend on the nature of central bank actions and communication, and the context in which they are received. There are many examples, though, of significant shifts in expectations induced by convincing people of a break from past practice. Examples include, as I mentioned before, the fiscal reforms accompanying the ends of hyperinflation, governance changes accompanying the adoption of explicit inflation objectives by other central banks in the last couple of decades, and the operational regime shift adopted by the Volcker FOMC in 1979. In many recent instances, in the last couple of years, FOMC actions or statements have induced short run movements. In market participants' expectations regarding the path of the federal funds rate and inflation. Although there may be no precise historical analogs for potential communications and actions to restore price stability in circumstances just like the present day, these examples suggest to me that significant shifts in inflation expectations are possible. In any case, the centrality of inflation expectations in the modern Phillips curve reinforces the importance of consistency and credibility in monetary policymaking, since these are traits that reduce people's uncertainty about future policy and stabilize expected inflation. It suggests that central banks should not take inflation expectations for granted by acting in ways that are inconsistent with expectations and assuming expectations will not shift as a result. Moreover, central banks should guard against underestimating the degree to which they are capable of influencing the evolution of inflation expectations. To paraphrase the late Milton Friedman, inflation is always and everywhere an expectational phenomenon. Or to put it another way, inflation expectations are an outcome of monetary policy, not an autonomous help or hindrance. Central banks are as responsible for the behavior of inflation expectations as they are for the behavior of inflation itself. Again, thank you very much for honoring me um, by inviting me to deliver the Sandbridge Lecture this year. It's been a distinct pleasure, um, and I thank you for it.